Welcome to Tech by Design. Design is passion, design is energy, design is enthusiasm. On these episodes, we'll talk to people who exude all those things about the products they build. Come join us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Tech by Design, presented to you on behalf of the Richmond Technology Council, or RVA Tech, brought to you by our sponsor, Shaco Mobile by Design. My name is Nick Surface. I am the CEO of the Richmond Technology Council, and I am your host today for Designing for Transit. And along with us, we have special guest Mark Badger. Mark is the creative director at CapTech. Mark, thanks so much for joining today. Sure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, just, you know, I just add a quick note. So we yeah. have several creative directors. I'm, there isn't the creative director. I am a creative director at CapTech. Just okay. to get it out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good sign for CapTech that there's so much creativity going on. You need multiple creative directors. So uh, we've we've talked to some CapTech folks in the past. Um, I know CapTech does a lot of great projects on, in multiple different ecosystems and, and verticals. Uh, but today we're talking transit. And, and Mark, it sounds like you all and, and CapTech have worked on multiple projects in that space, and we're going to kind of get to a couple of them later today, uh, one on behalf of COTA, one on behalf of SEPTA, and we'll go into those details. But I want to start at a high level with you, Mark. I want to talk about transit overall and what the problems are initially when clients come to you. Um, what are the most common challenges that authorities identify when they come to the table with CapTech and say, hey, here's what we want to do. Here are some of our initial challenges. Yeah, so... So we have worked with several agencies, but the two, as you mentioned, that I'm most deeply familiar with are with CODA, which is Central Ohio's Transit Authority, and SEPTA, which is Southeastern Pennsylvania's Transit, Transportation Authority. There's a lot of similarities between you know the problems that you need to, that they they bring to the table. They want us to help solve, but um, kind of I guess ironically, coincidentally, whatever you want to say, wayfinding on their site and app um, and apps uh, for just using the apps are some of the key problems they have. They're I guess typical with a lot of long in the tooth apps or sites where just over time, you know, new features have been added. There's kind of organic growth, but if it's somewhat unplanned or research informed, then you end up with kind of a it can be a bit of a you know rat's nest from a navigational perspective. So in both cases, there was a, a need to really upgrade look and feel, do some serious technology improvements, but fundamentally, like the usability of, the, of both the site that we worked on and the app that we worked on over time apps we worked on over time came around with about navigation, like finding your way, finding that key piece of information you need to basically make your, you know, in the pre-COVID era, your daily commute, but now like whatever your transportation needs are, um, finding it on the app and, and on the websites have, has been ironically an interesting, a harder problem for them, um, difficult problem for them to solve. And when we talk about transit, at least in this context, what specific channels are we talking about? Are we talking about Walking, buses, trains, uh, subway, are we getting into airports? How, what's the breadth and scope? Yeah, that's, that's evolved as well. It's a great question. Um, so initially, the problems, especially um, problems to be solved, um, especially around SEPTA, were fundamentally around their owned transit infrastructure. So the buses, the trains, the trolleys, the regional rail intersections. Like what you think of as kind of traditional transit infrastructure, public transit infrastructure. Over time, though, that has really changed, um, in part just because of the way micro-mobility has showed up, paratransit. So for those that don't know, um, paratransit is usually a last-mile service that is for folks that have some physical inability to access one of the transit nodes or stations. So there's usually like a shuttle service. You, you've probably seen them um, around town um, in various cities that help folks you know, access the transit system in the first place. So that kind of last-mile service 
is um, something in the past several years that has emerged as a need. And then things that you, you know, in the past, I don't know, how would you say, like five years or so, maybe really, whether it's scooters, shared bikes, that has been something they want to tie in as kind of a total mobility solution to get around an area. And the last part is, in fact, the walking. So I think probably pioneered by probably Google, although I have not researched this, so I can't say if they did it, but adding kind of that, how long is it going to take me to get to the stop? What's the rest of my trip look like once I exit the last station or get off the last bus? How much of a walk is involved? That's all now end to end is really what's happening these days. I want to come back to that later in the podcast, Mark, um, some of the innovative things that are happening, some of the new modes. You mentioned scooters. There's also ride sharing, other things that are just becoming more day to day. And I'd love sure. to talk about the integration of those. But before we do, um, let's go back, keep going back to the beginning. Um, I know that there's a big, um, or there's a large amount of research and, um, you know, user testing, usability testing, all that type of stuff that has to go into a project before you even begin to design. So can you yeah. talk about y'all's process for that? Um, how extensive is it? What kind of specific things are you doing? Maybe are you doing competitive analysis as well? Walk me through the whole pre-design process for you. Sure. So um, there's in general or specific to transit? Um, I'd say specific to transit. Yeah, let's keep it, okay. keep it with transit. And now that I said that, I realized like it's not that different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I would imagine you would so, approach all your problems similarly. Yeah. I mean, from a research perspective, and I'll touch on Coda because we actually, for the most recent work that we did with them, which was uh, two years ago now, just about two years ago, um, we did a really robust set of research activities to complement some research they had already done. So typically, we will actually start from like surveys and interviews to kind of understand who are the users we're serving. And transit's no different in this case. Um, we It's just a much bigger population that we're dealing with. It's not really it is a captive audience, if you will, but like, you know, millions of people, right? It's not like a small user base. So you're surveying um, users or people at the authority themselves? You know, both, actually. So they're, um, yeah, I know in the, coming up in the industry, um, I used to think of stakeholder interviews as two different things, stakeholder interviews and user interviews. These days, we mostly just say stakeholder interviews and we mean everybody, everybody that has like a, that is impacted or affected by the system. But um so we do that upfront research, trying to understand, you know, who all are we talking to, um, what problems or challenges do they want us to help them solve. There's a, the whole jobs to be done framework that we dig into, um, but there's the that kind of ground lane we do, and then we do a series of recursive is not quite the right word, but we have some proposed improvements to the navigation. We then do it. Um, a tree study is a way of kind of abstracting the information architecture from the design of the navigation itself um, to see. Is the, uh, is the flow and hierarchy of the information sensible. All of that gets enhanced, ideally, through design and the navigation um, when you present it through the UI. But you can also test, is the, does the, sen the structure and the hierarchy make sense at a base level? So we, in Coda, we did all that kind of uh, work. We did another um, type of study that we've only really done in the last five years or so called top task analysis. Um, it's, uh, I think it was pioneered by um, a gentleman named Jerry McGovern. You can, um, I don't have the reference handy, but we actually do a modified version of that. The real study is quite intense and it asks users to rank basically anything they can do on the site, like upwards of 75 to 100 tasks in the things that they think are most important. In our experience, asking uh, end users to deal with anything more than 40 to 50 pieces of information becomes something onerous and they just give up over time. So we do a simplified version of that to make sure that we are um, prioritizing the tasks that they care about. And in the case of Coda, 
We actually didn't do the persona development. There was a third party that had done that, and they were actually quite good. That isn't always the case, but they were robust. They were well-researched and well-documented. And we were able to actually take our research and um, use those facets to really chop up the information, um, whether we're doing the on the card sort basis, the interviews, the tree studies. We could show them that for your core personas, here's what they said was the most important thing. And for your non-core personas, you know, even non-riders for that matter, right? Here's the things that they care about. So, um, and then, as you mentioned, we do prototyping and usability testing during the early stages of the design process to make sure that the low fidelity work that we're doing, or do it in low fidelity, right, as a way of kind of moving quickly, um, that the the layouts, the flow, the UIs themselves are presenting information in a, as usable a way as possible. So, Mark, you mentioned core versus non-core personas, and persona development is something that we hear about across the design spectrum, whatever vertical we're talking about or industry we're talking about. And I'm curious, in transit, what did you all see as a core persona versus a non-core? Is it is it a youth segment? Is it a, is it a business traveler segment? Is it a particular task that people are trying to do? Is it based on the city itself and certain places that people want to go, and then the personas associated with those places? Um, what, what were you seeing for in terms of core versus non-core personas? Yeah, that's a great question. So for, for Coda, um, again, there was a third party that did the personas and we were able to consume those and analyze those. Um, we often talk in terms of primary and secondary personas all the time, right? Like the, and often it is, you know, the heaviest users versus the more, you know, the users that use whatever system we're doing least or, you know, less, uh, in the case of transit, it depends a lot, as you mentioned on the factors you you brought up. So it could be the type of mode that they're using, whether that's bus or rail, are they accessing regional or not? Um, in the case of Coda, they had identified a set of core, core personas that were around the heaviest users. So the daily users, some a group they called long haul users, which were people that were coming out from further terminuses in the system to get to, to downtown Columbus. And then I'm trying to remember the, the other ones exactly. There were um, in terms of the core users, they had about four of them. Right? I don't, they had them sliced and diced in a few different ways, but it was mostly around usage. They did have baked into the personas some some specific user needs. So I don't recall it being a separate persona, but access, mobility, um, accessibility in the ADA sense is a crucial thing to solve. So we worry a lot about accessibility in the digital sense, the WCAG standards, you know, when we're designing and producing apps and websites. But in the case of transit, you also have actual disabilities and, and access issues that you're wrestling with to make sure that people can use the system. So we have those captured in the personas. In the case of transit for the non-core, I think one of the surprising personas that we uh, we were presented with that made sense as soon as we talked about it was actually um, a set of non-riders. Like there are people that will literally never take transit and they're still a persona that needs to be dealt with in part because it's these are public agencies, right? There's a their common good that the government is providing and that people are paying their tax dollars to support whether they use it or not. So perceptions around reliability, safety, modernization, things that anybody might care about with transit, people that are non-riders still care about because their money is still paying for it. So it's not so much a, somebody using the app that we're trying to figure out you know, from a non-rider perspective, how do we serve their needs? But when we're thinking about the websites and the overall presentation of these rider tools inside a larger information context, we absolutely have to make sure that um, those audiences are well-served because they're still, we mentioned before, stakeholders, they are, they're shareholders to a degree or stakeholders to a degree because even if they don't use the system, they paid for it. Yep. Makes sense, Mark. Uh, you mentioned Coda a couple times now, so let, let's get into Coda. And with Coda, we are talking about the Central Ohio Transit Authority. And for you all specifically at CapTech, you worked on the .com, correct? Yes, correct. 
So I, I was looking at that and I found a, a couple things popped out to me, but I want to hear your take first about what were the main features? What was kind of the vision that they brought to you in terms of, um, hey, here's what we'd like done or here's what we're thinking about before you all even stepped into the trenches? Yeah. So they um, they were really ambitious. Um, they had an ambitious vision for what this site should be, but honestly, moreover, what their agency should be. Um, initially, when we even uh, spoke with them, we had gone back and forth on, usually we will talk about people as, as customers in general, right? Even when we're talking about government clients that we work with and transit, of course, is, is, you know, a branch of government, but we had actually gone back and forth and said, let's talk about your riders. And they said, no, 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 they're our customers. They very much were seeing this in a very B2C type of lens. Like they, they wanted their entire experience to be one of customer satisfaction of, you know, anything that we would bring to bear from our experiences designing for ultimate consumers that have true choice, right, between apps and services that they and products they might use. They wanted that same type of rigor brought to bear. And they also, anytime we said transportation authority, there was like this cringe that would happen. They really wanted to position themselves as a mobility solutions provider for Central Ohio, like a connector, not just a provider of transportation infrastructure, but actually helping people create community. So they're, um, yeah, they had really this ambitious vision for what a transit agency should do for a community. And they wanted that expressed through the website. So we had to have the rare bones and there are the things you would expect. And all, all of our research showed that, you know, you could not slough off on things like access to schedules, alerts, on time or not, on time departures, like, you know, the nuts and bolts had to be there. Um, but there was a lot around um, safety and sustainability. What is the agency doing to make sure that the impact to the region is net positive? What What is the agency doing to make sure, especially this was during COVID, the heart of COVID, right? That it's safe to ride on this bus or this train. What are the sanitation procedures? What are you doing to protect riders, basically? That was, as you would imagine, in the heart of the pandemic, uh, very important. But then they also, there was a lot of care and attention paid to the content and design around people that were just unfamiliar with riding transit. So part of this was looking ahead to, all right, ridership is down everywhere. That's just a thing, right? And how do we, as we start to get through the pandemic eventually, right, as they were looking ahead, how do we lay the foundation for getting people back into riding? Um, obviously, behaviors have changed. They are still evolving around work, right? And a lot of transit transportation, it's, it's based around density, right? And a lot of that has a, in the past, has had a strong work commute aspect to it. So all of that is still undergoing, you know, analysis and change. But um, for them, they wanted to make sure that it was easy to figure out how do I ride in the first place? What is it going to cost me? How do I pay for it? Like another set of nuts and bolts. If you're an everyday rider in a city like Boston or Philadelphia or even Columbus, you just know this stuff cold, right? You just, you live there, you have it memorized. You even probably know a lot of the schedules. Um, but for, if you've never taken a train or you've never ridden a bus, there's just a lot of unknowns. Like, how do I make sure I get up at the right stop? Does it cost me more if I go an extra stop? Like all of these kinds of basic pieces of information, even for residents, right? If they've never ridden a system, they wanted to make sure that that information was easily available on the site. So a lot of like, how do you ride transit, which is not something I was expecting walking into this. We were definitely expecting, you know, get those, you know, that utility, you know, to the fore, make sure you can get alerts and schedules like right away. We also, in SEPTA, we've called these things called zero click, which we can talk about. I don't know if we made that up or if we picked it up somewhere, but the idea that you show up and there's information you need and it's relevant for you right away, you don't have to tap or click to get it. We call it zero tap, zero click stuff. Um, and for Coda, that was the rider tools. But right alongside that was um, making sure you feel comfortable and you can find the information you need to 
to start using to start in this case to start using Coda. So that was surprising, and it was right in line with their idea that they are providing services not just um, to everyday riders that you know depend upon the buses in Central Ohio, but that want to try it for the first time, or maybe they're visiting the city. Right, that's another thing that was important both to Columbus and to, to Philadelphia. They are, you know, tourism is big. And if you're trying to get around a, a city like that, you want to make sure that your transit is easy to understand and, and to access. Yeah. Mark, you, you kind of hinted at it a couple of times. And I think you even said it like they had, Coda came to you with uh, an intention to reimagine their purpose and their vision and mission. In, I saw on the website, it says a mobility solutions provider, not necessarily a transit authority. Just from a creative perspective, I, was there ever a conversation about rebranding Coda as a whole and making it more <laughs> of a, you know, something catchy, clever, and more approachable than letters and an authority name? It's it's funny you bring that up. So this has especially been true for the work we do with Coda and more recently with SEPTA, where we are actually not the only agency in there doing work or a firm in there doing work, helping them improve their systems. Sure. Um, as you would imagine, I guess, right? But it's especially true now in a way that it wasn't true initially when we were working with SEPTA back in the day. But with Coda, they actually had um, a branding agency that they were working with actively that we were partnering with, or, or at least collaborating with, right? So they had created um, a brand new color palette to support this. They, I don't think they ever reconsidered renaming Coda. Yeah. Yeah. But they did have some tension between on their social, um, I think they still are, there's a lot of at Coda bus and mm. they, you know, and yep. they wanted to try shift to just Coda more just generally. Um, but in the same way that a lot of, you know, I don't know, acronyms or initialism organizations start to like drop what the actual words are behind there. They very much just yep. want to be Coda. They didn't yep. want to, as, as I mentioned, they didn't want to have that TAB socially strongly with transportation authority. They just want to be Coda. It's your Coda, whatever. Yeah. Um, so simplification and clarification for sure, but I don't know if they wanted to rebrand, but there was a lot of negotiating that had to happen along with this idea of making it approachable. There were a lot of influence from that branding agency and with marketing on on the site itself. Of course, the design and the aesthetic, it had to feel part of a family, right? But they, um, you can see on the site today, there's something we call brand moments. They really wanted to rename a lot of the navigation to be a quote friendlier or, and this is something we wrestle with in product and product design all the time, right? This idea that we want to name things cool or cute or attractive, but ultimately it often obscures like the actual like utility that you'll get behind this link, right? Um, in the case of Coda, we made an, a compromise where we said, look, we're not going to re, we can't recommend renaming things like writer tools to something funky, cool, whatever it would be, you know. Um, but let's, let's find a way to get some brand moments in here. So if you look at the navigation on mobile or on the responsive mobile or on the web, you'll see these, these marketing slash PR slash brand statements show up right there in the context of the navigation. But it's alongside and supportive of what's going on there. It helps you understand actually what the rest of the content is there. So it actually, Really does. I, I was really happy with how that turned out, and and, and uh, the way our team could compromise with them on this because it actually felt like the sum of the parts being better than it would have otherwise been. Like we weren't fighting for this. Once we presented this solution, they're like, "Oh my god, we can figure out exactly what that should say right there." That both sends a message we want to send, but also it helps it clarify what's available in that menu. So um, that was unexpected, but worked out really well and was a brand infusion into the work we were doing. You know, Mark, if you hadn't said that, I don't think I would have caught on to this, but as you're saying that, and I'm kind of tabbing around on the website here, I'm seeing some of the copy that's written and the way that you're using taglines instead of just 
classifying words. And so when I go to each tab, for instance, for those who are at, who are at home and maybe not on the website, it says, when you say, when you click on the writing coda, it says, making sure you're comfortable. And then the service is providing you with options. And then community is bettering our community. Initiatives are thinking to the future. And it goes on and on from there. And then each, yeah. you know, sub item also has copy that's just a little more approachable and a little more direct and clear than something that, like you said, that's clever and cute or just practical and, you know, and, and structured. So, sure. um, you know, uh, I commend you and your, your copywriting team for putting some words in there that, you know, sometimes when we talk about design, we don't think about the words themselves and, and they do have a lot big impact in, in terms of how the site is used and what the user experience is. So. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Do you have something else? No, it's because that's absolutely an increasingly important part of, um, of what we think our work is when we're doing the design work for products and services is um, providing not just usable, but compelling and persuasive copy that helps you understand what you're, what you're into um, or what the experience you're getting into. So Mark, in that same vein, I noticed on the website, a lot of the imagery is more people-based. There are a lot of faces there. Um, it's a lot of photography versus graphics um, things that sometimes on a transit site you could imagine just using more clip art type things or, you know, just more graphical items. Um, was that a conscious, deliberate decision or, or how did that come to be? Yeah, so that we had a lot of guidance from the branding agency that they brought in that we were partnering with to, to redesign the site. Uh, there was a, I'm trying to remember how they framed it exactly, but they, they wanted to move away from, so they wanted real imagery of central Ohio. They wanted to be recognizable as such. They, so they issued any stock imagery that was not going to be a thing. So in our proposal to them, like we included some, you know, buses and stuff in motion, whatever it could have been from any transit, but they didn't, they didn't want any of that. It was going to be any equipment that we would show would be Coda, any scenery that we would show would be central Ohio. It would be recognizable. They also wanted people in there. This is the audience that they serve. And so they, they invested in their own photography to make sure that they had those, those images again, so we wouldn't have to rely on stock photography. During the design process, we did have some stock that we used in there as placeholders until the, you know, to show this is how we'd want an image like this to be implemented and integrated into the experience. But they replaced all that stuff with their own photography. So there was a, there was a conscious brand level decision to focus on recognizable scenery, real people. And to the extent that equipment showed up, it would be actual code of equipment, but they wanted to de-emphasize that. They felt like historically for them and kind of stereotypically, there's a lot of focus on the trains in motion or the train arriving or the bus leaving the stop. And they want they, just, they wanted to shift away from that and talk about people and yep. show people. Yeah. And it, it would be very easy to be very cliche on a, a transit site, like you said, Absolutely. photography of the transit itself or, you know, more graphics. Um, sure. Mark, I want to switch over. I want to also talk about the other project you all have going or um, are working with and on continuously, the SEPTA project, which is Southeastern yeah. Pennsylvania Transportation Authority. Um, yep. And this is not a .com. This is a mobile app in this case, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a pair of right? um, Android okay. and iOS apps. Yeah, um, Great. So walk me through the same kind of thing early on. What were some of the features, concerns? Um, you know, what were they bringing to the table in terms of their their next vision for, for that particular application? Yeah, it's it's been a long partnership. We've gone through a lot um, with, with them helping them improve this app. So way back when, when we started about five, six years ago, they needed to basically blow up what they had and, and recreate it. Um, it had even then gotten kind of long in the tooth. And I don't remember if they'd done any initial customer research or rider research to really inform that they had some, you expect like the bare bones functionality was there, but um, they had um, an UI that um, the metaphor is called springboard. It's actually the way that 
iOS and Android show their icons all the time. Um, there's different, you know, navigational metaphors you can use, but they, the idea is that they had, um, again, it's not a name so much as a concept, but they had all these icons and she would just select these icons. So I mentioned briefly before this idea of zero tap. Even when we did the initial redesign about five years ago, we wanted there to be immediately available information, like without having to do anything. Could we use the inherent phone's capabilities around uh, location, GPS, to just show you here's stuff that's near you? So as we've worked up until the, the new, the new um, app that we're designing right now, I think we're calling 3.0, um, and uh, it should have a catchy name, but it doesn't. <laughs> but um, for all the versions of the 2.0, it has been incremental and like the things that are now just table stakes were stuff that we were adding as we were going. So as recently as last year, we added mobile ticketing and which did not exist before. Um, and that is a whole other conversation we could have about how you um, expose and work with infrastructure, like hard infrastructure, physical things that, you know, have kind of hardwired types of APIs and, you know, QR code or readers and things like that. It's a, it's a whole other set of problems to help solve. But with SEPTA over the years, it was just like, how do we get real-time information? And that was something we didn't have before. Parking availability, accessibility information, that was, you know, we'd be adding those things as we went. So for for this new 3.0, it was a, it's been a chance to completely reinvent this again. What lessons have we learned over time? We got the opportunity to do some, some brand new research uh, along the way. SEPTA is undergoing a transformation right now, and you can see a lot of that information online. We are partnering with several <laughs> agencies to get this work done. There's a, a partner agency that's doing the SEPTA.org website, which they're solving a lot of the same problems that we were solving with Coda before, um, because it's not just about the writer tools, it's about all the information that, um, that complements that. There's a separate branding agency that is reworking all of their transit to simplify it. So <clears throat> if you're familiar with you know, Boston, New York in particular, DC, or even London, a very kind of the Maximo Vignelli kind of approach to um, you know, how you would simplify a transit system with those color-coded you know, certain lines or certain colors, and there's a very simple either numerical or alphanumeric way of identifying them as the A line, the C line, or the T or whatever. Um, they're doing all of that with SEPTA. And it's, so not only are we redesigning to make this app more useful and user-friendly, we're actually at the same time designing for a future state that does not currently exist on the ground. So we have these interim solutions we have to do as well. So if you're used to, um, to taking the market, market Frankfurt line, um, in Philadelphia, that I think, if I get this right, is going to be called, as you might expect, like the M line going forward. But nobody knows that because that's not out there yet. Like some of the information has been published, but while we're doing user testing, we're having to like create these bridge experiences that that both test for this eventual future state, which will be much more simple and clarified, and a current state, which is not as simple. Um, so yeah, there's a and I'm trying to remember exactly what your question was. <laughs> uh, um, I think I just wanted to know about the features, what were some of the yeah. initial concerns about about um, the SEPTA app. Um, but Mark, actually, as you were talking, I wanted to kind of ask you um, about the mind of the designer in this case. So what you're thinking about personally, because this is a there's different scenarios when you come uh, to the table with a client. A lot of times you're new to the project and you're coming in with a fresh slate and you're bringing that fresh perspective and you're saying, okay, Great. Um, we're the new people at the table. We want to create something cool. But at the same time, I've heard this before that as a designer, you're also worried, hey, are we checking all the boxes they need? Are we getting all the functionality accomplished? What are they, what do they want? In this case, you've been with the client for multiple years, multiple iterations. And sometimes, you know, that can be viewed as, hey, you know, you're not a fresh perspective. You've been around for a while. But on the flip side, 
I've actually found that some designers actually can be more creative at that stage of the game because they know the basics, they know the foundation, the boxes are checked in terms of functionality. They can really think visionary and think towards the future because they're not so hamstrung with, gosh, are we going to please this client and get the basics done? The basics are already done in this case. You all are actually starting to talk about the future. How, does yeah. that ever go through your mind about, hey, I know I am comfortable with this client. I can now really think about stretching their boundaries and really kind of innovating on, on their behalf. Yeah. So um, so first of all, it's, it's been a great partnership and we've been lucky enough to have a lot of the same stakeholders along the way. So there is the kind of the, the potential for either side of that, right? The are we being innovative enough? Are we really thinking outside the box, to use that expression, about what this app and this experience could be, not just like what it has been? Um, I think in our case, it is very much, we've been able to play to the strengths. So over time, you get familiar with what is and is not possible. And that does that, again, that can keep you from imagining a better future. But in this case, because of all the other work that's happening, there's just been a sense of freedom. And I think both for our key stakeholder on the IT side at SEPTA and for myself, there have been things that we call our like white whales. <laughs> like, hopefully, won't you know die on that metaphor. But the idea that um, you know for a long time in the app, we did not have the information available, for example, to integrate the schedules with some of the trip planning, which sounds very weird. And if you would look at the actually, it's present in the app today, the current live app right now. If you go to two or three of the screens, the experience of using it is almost identical. It's just the context is supposedly different, but you're, you have to kind of pick your mode of transit. You have to pick a starting point and then we'll present you either the schedules or the real-time information, et cetera. And for me, I was like, this makes no sense. These should be a single experience, right? Like there's a, if I'm interacting in the same way with three different screens, it probably means that I've done something wrong, right? But it's not just me, right? I do want to say this is we have a design team. I'm the creative director for the team. My background's in experience design for you know a couple of decades now. Um, so I'm providing leadership direction and some of that contextual knowledge, of course, about the client and what's been possible. But my team is awesome and they're doing all the awesome work around. Um, I'm just gonna say awesome another time in case you want another one, you can say you can pull out there. Um, doing the research, doing the designs. We've actually had a couple of people. Um, move in and out of the team, but the project manager and myself can provide that through line, that continuity, that is another strong point. But yeah, we've, in this case, we're, we're taking the historical problems that we're very familiar with. And those are like on the table, like, all right, we're going to solve them this time. And the new design absolutely takes care of those, but we are taking the opportunity to kind of, to rethink everything. And I think, again, part of this is this transformational momentum that's happening at SEPTA. We're able to ride that wave. And so it doesn't feel like we're being held back by historical precedent or, God, these are the same people that created an app that over time has gotten more harder and harder to use. Is this the right team for this? And I think, you know, as I mentioned, they're kind of at the top. It's just a natural organic growth um, that apps and sites and services and products will go through. Sometimes it is the people that have been living with it all this time that might be most aware of wow, we've let those branches grow, those side paths accrue, and we need to cut that back. And so we do the research um, with end users to make sure that some of those assumptions are correct. But in this case, I think it's been to our strength to have some of that continuity on the team. Um, but we are definitely aware of those potential issues, right? Mark, you've mentioned your team several times here. The folks who are listening to this podcast are on their own teams, leading their own teams, that type of thing. Can you talk a little bit about how your creative team is structured um, either the backgrounds or the, t the positions or how big, how small, whatever it might be. How, how do you think about your team in terms of its structure? Um, I think, cause I think our audience could, could relate to that and, and is probably curious as to how you structure it. Sure. Um, 
I'll mention a couple of things and we'll see if that kind of um, covers a couple of the more important points. So I've been at CapTech almost 10 years. And prior to that, I was with a, a different agency slash consulting firm for about seven years. And so these are each of them respectively were the longest time I'd spent, you know, with, uh, with a single company. And there are definitely some differences from traditional kind of agency structure. I'd you know, it's been, you know, like I said, about 17 years since I've been with some other organization. So I don't know exactly how everything has, you know, evolved over time with um, some of our competitors and peers. But for us, we have, even pre-COVID, we were basically distributed. So we don't have a kind of pod structure where, um, I don't know, when you think of something like, I mean, even like a Mad Men or like, uh, you know, some of those other reality shows that might show you what an agency is like, when we hire our designers, our researchers, our practitioners, they become part of the team at large. So they're not part of my team. I don't hire them for, for my work or, you know, I have certain accounts that I've had a long relationship with like SEPTA um, and like some others, um, but it's much more fluid than you might imagine. So when we hire uh, an interaction designer or a junior interaction designer, they're available for any of the projects or any of the, the teams and team leaders that we have. And I don't have, like, I have a project manager that I've worked with on several accounts, but that's just the way it's worked out. And we, she knows all of my weak spots. So it's, so it's, that's awesome, but it isn't fixed. You know, it, it's much more fluid. Um, as I mentioned, we've been basically distributed, not as remote as we are now, but distributed since before COVID. Um, it just, we found it to be to our advantage, but it definitely, the foot on the gas happened during COVID. And one of the things when we, we do regular check-ins and surveys with our, with our, um, design group, our CX practice, which is about, it's between 60 and 70 folks right now to find out like what is working for you, what isn't working for you. And we found quickly inside of the heart of the pandemic that um, people really enjoyed getting to work with a lot of different people they hadn't worked with before. And that was definitely um, kind of a net plus of working distributed during the pandemic. Um, in addition to the kind of now inherently distributed and you know kind of remote way of collaborating folks might be interested to know like what are the skill sets that we now think of as part of our team so i i alluded to before you know we have content writers and content strategists like on our team that's not unusual honestly but it's seen as for from our perspective increasingly important we've invested heavily um in the past couple of years in getting real accessibility specialists on board so people that um, understand WCAG inside and out and are accredited and basically are helping our team uh, level up entirely. We really want our entire set of designers to understand how to deliver accessible experiences. Um, not only is it, you know, the right thing to do um, and, you know, in increasingly in best practice for a lot of our clients, it's absolutely like legally what we need to do for them is provide an accessible experience. But in terms of like the core set of folks, like if you, you know, if you just took a random person in our practice, you know, where might they sit? We have kind of a continuum of research uh, on the U under the UX side of this, right? Or depending on how, whether you think of design is over UX or UX over design. Research on the one hand through to interaction design and prototyping, that's a very different skills there, but there's often a common practitioner that is doing all of those things. And then we have our UI and visual designers. They, as you would imagine, heavily overlap into interaction design. So there is kind of this flow of a continuum. So when we hire our folks, whether they're you know experienced hires or people just out of school, they tend to have a bias one way or the other. They may have identified as a designer early on and have kind of always been in that path and have been spending their hours and days 
thinking about color, typography, layout, composition, balance, all that stuff, right? And you may have other folks that have been fascinated early on by human psychology and like the whys and the wherefores of how people work with technology. Um, and then there's people that are fascinated just with the problem of, you know, how products, digital products in particular work, how they're structured, how they behave. Um, again, these things bleed uh, across and we, we actually love when our practitioners are familiar with all that stuff. But the reality is that getting expert at all of that is, is hard, right? These are, you can learn a lot of these activities, you can practice all of that, but you often have a kind of a strong suit that you get to play to. Um, so our team is a lot of hybrid folks, um, but I would not want to say, you know, team attorneys used to use a while ago, right? Unicorns. Um, we do have unicorns, but we just don't, and we want people to become more unicornish to their you know, heart's desire kind of thing. But we don't expect like a hardcore, like somebody that's really learned the nuts and bolts of user research and survey design and interviewing techniques and everything to also be executing an exquisite UI. Like they haven't, like in the 10,000 hour, 10, hour kind of rough rule of things, that's not where they've spent their time. So I think if you had asked me several years ago, what do I think about that, um, you know, designers and researchers and UX practitioners, I was much more of the mindset that um, people kind of came to certain natural like affinities. I've come to think over time, it's much more about the time you spend and what you invest in. So if you've been doing art or design since high school, you're likely to be much better at those nuances of pixel level detail and lighting sources and color palettes than somebody who's only taken a boot camp, right? So, yeah. Mark, I think that's the most extensive um, analysis of, of team dynamics that we've heard on this podcast. So I, I appreciate you going through it all because, yeah, the team really does make up the end product. I mean, it's it's the people that you bring to the table. Do you bring a diversity of perspective, of background, of expertise? And like you said, the, the 10,000 hour thing is real. What you've spent your time on may not be the same thing that somebody else has. And it's good to partner together and, and bring those all to a, a collaboration. Mark, I want to kind of round out with a couple more things on the transit side. And then I want to get your take on maybe something, maybe a podcast, maybe a piece of media or a book or something that you might recommend to our audience. So I'll, I'll kind of leave that Easter egg with you for a moment. But in the meantime, I want to ask technically about the solutions that you provide versus third party apps, because I think you mentioned that that is a consideration early on with some of the clients. You know, is it worth bringing in your entire team and going through this process and designing a custom solution? When there are third-party apps out there, and you know maybe they're "quote unquote" good enough, but what is good enough, and is good enough really good enough in terms of whatever the context might be? But can you talk a little bit about the decisions you've seen or the considerations you've seen around own solution versus third-party app? Absolutely, yeah. So this was a, a big deal for us, in particular, on the work we did with Septa was trying to figure out. You know, we, again, we have this chance to reinvent this app, and the market has evolved since then. And what really should we be doing and providing? So the client, um, various client stakeholders kind of, on, I think it would be kind of a default position. I don't know if it's how strategic exactly. Um, I don't want to imply that it wasn't, but I think there's a sense of, yeah, they're a provider. They need to provide everything, right? That the rider or visitor or resident or citizen needs to use SEPTA. But in reality, um, we had a lot of discussions around, well, Google Maps, Transit, um, and even Apple Maps, there's a ton of perfectly fine capability right there. And there's a reason for that, which is that underlying a lot of this is a, is a kind of a framework or a API standard called GTFS, which used to stand for, I think, Google Transit File. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's on GTFS.org, but it's since been abstracted to just general transit, I think, file specification. 
But all of these apps are consuming that same information and it's provided by the agency. So when you see that you know, train um, X or bus Y is leaving a certain stop or station and arriving another one that's provided by the agency published out and Apple consumes it, Google consumes it, or, you know, Google Maps consumes it and transit consumes it. And so it's no surprise that you're getting the same type of information elsewhere. So it does raise a question of, well, if these multi-billion dollar companies, I don't know how much money transit has, but um, these large companies that that's all they do all day long, right, is spend money on this stuff and they have a the amount of resources they can throw at the problem are just dwarf what SEPTA could, even with the kind of budgets that SEPTA has. So, and that's true of other transit agencies as well, right? Like if it doesn't make sense to compete, if you will, with the Google Maps or an Apple Maps. So one case in point there is if you look at what MBTA is doing, they're not a client of ours, but they've been doing great work around findability and wayfinding of the transit system in Boston. It's multimodal as well, trains, buses, and so on for years. They're kind of a, they've been a go-to model. TriMet is another one in Portland, but MBTA has a separate mobile ticketing app, but they don't have their own transit app. There's no, there's not a branded T app that you can download from, from MBTA, at least, you know, as of this podcast, um, maybe they'll come out with one, but they do promote these other solutions. And I think they've, I'm guessing, not knowing them, right, that they've seen it as strategically the way, the best way to spend their money. For SEPTA, um, we talked about all of that. And really the decision came down to that in part, SEPTA had a lot of information they wanted to convey and a lot of a lot of windows into the experience of riding SEPTA that they felt they were best suited to present. So we looked all the time at, so we did initial competitive analysis, yeah, of like Google Maps, um, Transit, even Apple Maps, but then a lot of related slash adjacent, so Lyft, Uber, people that are basically providing the same, doing the same jobs to be done, right? I need to get from point A to point B in this city. Um, how should I do that? So we looked at a lot of those and there's a lot of the UI kind of presentations of information have been inspired by what Google is doing in particular, because they're just out ahead and all this kind of stuff. And we have a lot of the same information available, but it was a, it was a tough choice. I think at the end of the day, we really, the, the team, um, the com- combined team, SEPTA, us and partners felt it should be kind of a holistic app. You shouldn't have to go to Google or Apple to kind of find your way through the city. Part of that, I didn't mention this yet, but there was a, another part of the infrastructure that they leverage is something called Open Trip Planner, which a lot of, a lot of agencies use. It's, um, it's an open source project that provides a lot of the same out-of-the-box capability that Google Maps does in their proprietary format. So that I think without that, we would probably struggle to provide a comparable experience. But because we're leveraging Open Trip uh, Planner, Open Street Maps, these other open source projects, we're able to provide a comparable experience in a way that SEPTA felt was worth the investment so that it's really a holistic uh, transit experience. Mark, can you also talk a little bit about um, innovation and thinking going forward? So at the beginning of the pod, we talked a little bit about some of the other channels. So scooters, um, ride sharing is obviously not new, uh, but there are right. other ways to, to get to that last mile, like you were saying, um, or just innovative players in the market and you know new modes of transportation every day. Are you seeing any of those types of things being integrated into your, your projects or are you all considering them or... How does that factor into your design and, and some of the discussions that you all have? Yeah, so we've, in our designs, so on the on the point of the micro-mobility and some of that last mile stuff, although not the ride shares exactly, we've accounted for some screens that could accommodate that. Like where in the where in the experience of this app does it make sense to present those those pieces of information and how might it be presented? So we've, we've mocked all that up thinking ahead to 
you know, if we have the data available for whatever scooter service, you know, or bike share is available. Um, I can't remember the name. There actually is a bike share, at least one bike share in Philadelphia, right? That they, I think it's called Indigo maybe. Um, in any case, we've, we've designed for that, but to use a bit of a transportation metaphor, but when the rubber meets the road, um, is the data available? Is it reliable? So similar to some of the conversations we've had about being able to present accessibility information for the entire end-to-end trip that somebody might take, like, are there escalators or um, elevators or just other uh, ramps, like other ways that folks can access a, a stop or station along the entire route? Can we with confidence present that information? There's the same type of consideration, like, do we trust and do we have access to the information in a way that we could present it in the app and have it feel reliable? So we've planned from a design perspective for some of those some of those other adjacent services and partner complementary services. Um, but it really depends on the data at the end of the day. So when we get into the development, which we're beginning shortly here, that's when we're going to figure out, like, do we have access to it? Does it in the, you know, in the product backlog, does it rise to the level of something we're going to tackle in any given sprint or set of sprints, you know, to bring to bear uh, for the first release of the new app? So in terms of those kinds of things, it's um, there is a practical consideration of innovation, which I know they often are put at odds against each other. But in terms of like thinking more broadly outside the box, I think that's a bit of a it's a bit of a future concern, um, which I'm it's like I'm literally metaphorically. Can you literally metaphorically do something? But kicking the can down the road. But there's so many like present day problems to solve, um, to help them solve and to do better than we did before. That that's where we're focusing a lot of our energy right now. Um, in term and in terms of innovation, this is almost like the same type of thing you enter into when you're thinking about navigation design for any experience. Like, do we reinvent the bottom nav bar? Do we reinvent how top navigation works? Um, where is the place for creating net new ways of interacting with information in a digital appliance in this case? Um, and I don't know that transit is the best place for that. We're talking about really a mass market, right? And we have users that that are, you know, they need their vision impaired or they have other, other things that are going to affect their ability to use this. They might even have some, um, whether it's they're using a very outdated device, you know, because they haven't updated in a while or they're, whatever the limitations would be, there's a kind of a lowest common denominator. We need to make sure it gets served because there is a, it is a public good. And there's an equity component to what we, to what we're designing for, where if you make something that is, may seem like interesting and cool, is it intuitive? There's that tension between kind of stayed boring and expected and innovative, new and exciting and intuitiveness can be on either side of that, right? So, um, if you're expecting an ex- if experience looks as you expect it and you know how to use it right away, that we usually talk of as intuitive, but it might seem from a brand or from an experiential, experiential perspective to be uninteresting or not innovative. And you could have something that's very innovative that really reinvents how you think about access. I mean, and it's a brand new UI, like the most recent one I can think of is way back when, and I don't even know if it's actually intuitive, but the pull to refresh was something that I was like seven years ago, probably, and nobody had done that before. There's a lot of debate about how discoverable that is, but it's now very common. I think swipe to, you know, on any kind of line list element that you usually have a hidden behavior available. We try to be good about making sure those are, you know, complementary interactions. Um, but those are interesting and intuitive and have to do with us learning more and more what people expect out of a touch uh, experience. But when they were initially published, they were not intuitive, right? Like nobody expected that I can swipe on my email in a list and then get an action to delete or snooze or whatever. But over time, it becomes intuitive, right? So in transit, I'm not sure it's the right space to create these brand new things where we're trying to help people accomplish their commute 
understand a city and, and uh, experience a city as a tourist or visit a friend or relative. And that's not the space we want to challenge, like some common assumptions about how a UI works, I think. But we do work hard to make sure that, for example, the wayfinding system that's being simplified at SEPTA is accurately represented. And that is new for this app. So it's, is it innovative and what I think a lot of people might assume is mean, they mean by innovation? Maybe not. Is it innovative for this space? And then just to go back to Coda for a second, and I mentioned those brand moments, to me, that felt like a real innovative thing. It's, it was a, it's a very common bread box or, you know, big bus navigation, whatever you want to want to call it. Um, but to insert a brand moment that struck a great compromise between a kind of a marketing moment and a strict utility of like making sure that the, uh, the labels and taxonomy are what people expect there to be. And they don't have to do some kind of guessing game that felt like a, an innovative moment in what is otherwise a very kind of expected experience again, because we're trying to get people from home to work and back, you know? Mark, I think the last five to seven minutes have been a masterclass in designing for innovation. And, you know, we came on here talking about designing for transit, but I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked about the tension between compelling and interesting versus practical and streamlined and what's really functional for a particular use case. Um, so there's another hour of content, I think, that we could probably <laughs> dive into right there um, yeah. that, we, that we don't have. I don't. I have six more minutes with you, but... <laughs> um, that that's fascinating, Mark. I, I before we kind of end here, I just want to I want to say thank you and, and say how much I appreciate how you've kind of bobbed and weaved between the actual technical aspects of designing for transit today, but also talking about design and and some of the higher level concepts that you think about as a uh, creative director at, at CapTech. Some of the just highlights that I, I made note of as we went along today that I want to just summarize for our audience. I, obviously, we've been on here for almost an hour now, so there's been lots of good stuff, but uh, one of the things you said early on, you mentioned that when you were working on the website, it was not designing for more than fifty to forty to fifty pieces of information. And I think that's interesting when we think about how technical a website can be, how much we have in our brains, and how much we're thinking about at any given time. But at the same time, you have to streamline and have to think what are the main functions of a particular um, user experience and design for those. You've talked about zero tab, zero click, which I think uh, should be front and center when we're designing in today's environment. I mean, we're all just trying to save half a second here, half a second there. And you even kind of wrapped it up when you started talking about swiping at the end. I mean, it's those types of functionality at first feel foreign, or you start to wonder with the zero stuff, where is the click here? Where is this? And rea in reality, it's just a better design, uh, but it takes a while to get used to. We talked about being clever and cute versus practicality and being approachable. And just because something is, um, you know, maybe looks a little better, is a little more clever, doesn't necessarily mean it's a better design. We talked about partnering with other organizations and that you're, I think sometimes people get into the design world and think that they're going to be a master designer and the only eyes and, and ears and, and set of hands at the table. And really, partnering is very much about collaboration with, with multiple organizations, multiple clients, potentially, multiple people at the table, teams, creative teams, not just create creators. Um, and I think that's a big difference. Um, you mentioned the sense of freedom when you've been with a client for multiple years. And I think freedom pairs with independence, which pairs with creativity. So just because you've been on a project through multiple years or multiple iterations doesn't mean that you can't uh, continue to innovate and be the, the right designer at the right time for that project. And you talked lastly about innovation and how future planning depends on data and the integrity of that data and the reliability of it. And just because you want to do something new or cool or innovative, you got to make sure that you have the right information in front of you before you can make the right decisions in terms of which paths you're going to go down, because there's so many paths these days. And part of design is choosing which path to take 
not necessarily taking all the paths. So Mark, as we wrap it up here, um, I want to ask you something that, that we kind of ask all our guests. Um, is there a particular book, podcast, piece of media, maybe even an experience, something that you've consumed recently that has made you think about design differently or just keeps you fresh and on your toes about design or just something you can share with our audience that may help them be better designers? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I think that in some ways, it depends on, I guess, where you are in your career, right? So in some ways, if you were to ask a um, somebody that's only five, three or four or five years in the career, they're going to have a very different answer than I'll have, right? Because my role and what I care for over time has changed. So, um, you know, most recently um, in the past few years, it's been more around strategy, actually. So I've been doing design of one kind or another for years. I was trained as, a, as an architect in school, uh, original architecture, and, you know, went into design and digital after that. And um, I found over time that the problems I wanted to solve, I kept moving forward and forward. So everything has changed with Agile now. But back in the day, I moved from doing visual design to doing UX because I felt they needed to get closer to the problem we're trying to solve, not just the finishing touches when it was very much waterfall. And But I think some early texts that I think are still very relevant for people that are trying to understand user experience, um, still like design of everyday things, the late newest edition, um, which is a couple of years, several years old now, is still like just a great book to help you understand why should we, we should care about these things at all and some of the early metaphors that Don Oren puts out there. Um, there are other texts like that that are still relevant that help explain this. Um, Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug is, uh, and I hope I'm saying these people's names correctly, um, are good. But um, you know, one go-to for a long time was Brand Gap by Marty Neumeyer, um, which is this short book. You can There's PDFs available elsewhere, but it's worth buying. It helps you understand what a brand is and how it works. That was a transformative small book for me. So if you're trying to understand the space in which you work as a designer, whether it's the the UX and usability side or like, you know, in service to a brand, these are some books I would recommend. As I said, more recently, I've been getting into kind of the strategy. So Roger Martin, who used to teach at the Rotman School, um, has just a series of great books on the intersection of design and business. Um, and I think as you, I was about to say, even as you mature as a designer, but honestly, as product and product design has become ever more um, understood as crucial to how businesses deliver services and value to customers, understanding the business framework and the context that you're solving for is really important. So being fluent in um, what a product owner or what a business stakeholder cares about. To be a good designer, you're not just designing on behalf of the end users, which we often have a bias towards. And I would never want anybody to lose that. You have a you have people you're serving, right? That are you're providing uh, value for on behalf of a company, but it is on behalf of a company. So understanding like the business strategy goals imperatives and being able to speak to them and and understand them is very important. So I highly recommend Roger Martin's um, various works. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific book, but I think it's Design for Business was an early one I read that was like, okay, I'm going to follow this guy. Um, And he writes a lot on, I think, on Medium and publishes through LinkedIn. So from a design and business perspective and how those intersect, um, I'd recommend him highly. Another thing that's been emerging for our practice and in the field is, you mentioned this before, um, but diversity and inclusion. I know that for some people, this can be you know controversial, but the evidence and the research is out there to support that we come up with better solutions when we have diverse teams solving them. At some level, it should just be intuitive, I think. Um, you mentioned before the, the challenges of being a, a designer with a long-term relationship to a problem they're trying to solve and you know are they still able to solve it well? 
Well, when you have a diverse team that you're able to bring to bear, some of those liabilities get um, mitigated or just obviated completely because you have a team that is bringing those fresh perspectives for you. So were it just me, I still think I'd be down for solving that white whale problem of the navigation I talked about in SEPTA. But I have the benefit of being able to bring in a lot of great people to actually help me figure that out and with their diverse perspectives and backgrounds and lived experiences. So in terms of reading, there's a lot of material out there. I think, I mean, it's, again, this might be obvious to folks, but I think at least if you haven't subscribed to um, uh, Harvard Business Review for at least a year, do that. See if you want to keep it. This is not like, I don't have any relationship with them, but um, having access to their archives and their writing on strategy, on creativity, innovation, business, intersection business and design, and in this case, um, the power of diverse teams, I think it's worth the worth the subscription for at least a year so you can dig into that. They've also done a lot of work on how we work today in terms of remote and distributed teams. So um, those are, I don't know if there's the kind of sources that a young designer coming out of design school that is trying to think about how to how to really enhance their craft and create exquisite and meaningful experiences if that speaks to them, but hopefully it will at some point. <laughs> like the, the importance of understanding the business context in which we do our work. Mark, I got to say, I'm impressed uh, recommending HBR as a Yale guy. Uh, that is, you know, um, that takes a lot of uh, modesty. So uh, I commend you for that. Um, but great recommendations all around. You, uh, I think you feel like you can cover the gamut there from from new folks to experienced folks. So I think there's a lot of um, a good meat in there in terms of recommendations of, of media. So thanks so much for that, Mark. Um, and really, Mark, thanks for your whole your the whole the whole hour today that we've spent. Um, I think this is actually the longest Tech by Design podcast we've recorded. So your content has been compelling, and we it's been fascinating to watch you go through you know designing for transit, but also just designing, which is really what we're here to talk about. So with that said, um, I want to thank all of you listening again. I want to thank Shaco, our sponsor of Tech by Design, and of course today's content is brought to you by the Richmond Technology Council RVA Tech. Uh, We'll see you on another episode of Tech by Design. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Nick.